1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll read again just one phrase in verse number 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. On Sunday mornings, three weeks ago, we began a verse-by-verse series through the book of 1 Peter. Spent a week talking about Peter the man, spent a week introducing the book, and then we got to verse 2 and I stopped at this phrase last week because as I explained, this is the go-to verse for a system, a body of theology that is called Calvinism. And because this is one of their main proof texts, I thought that it would be beneficial to just take a couple of weeks and just stop and examine those doctrines that make up Calvinism and, and why I believe, why I believe that they are in error. I believe that there is a need in our Baptist churches for more doctrinal preaching and teaching. Now, many of us, many of us in this church, we, we have studied doctrines and, and we, we have a love for doctrines and, and we can defend what we believe that the Bible teaches. But I recognize that there are also others who have not been as exposed to the same reading or maybe um, hearing other preachers that, that, that perhaps that we have heard or, or maybe that are listening during the week to other preachers that, well, that sounds good, but there's, some, there's something that's uncertain, an uncertain sound in that. And I have a passion for truth, pure, unadulterated truth. And so I wanted to stop for just a couple of weeks and, and, and just teach doctrine. And, and I know that it's a Sunday morning service, but I want to expose what I believe is one of the most dangerous doctrines or heresies that can infiltrate a church, and that's Calvinism. And so as I began to collect and collate my notes, I knew that I needed more than a week to do it. I, I didn't want to stretch it out too far, but I needed more than a week. And so I, I felt like that if I condense it down to the bare essentials, three weeks, Three weeks, we can go through the five doctrines of Calvinism, and then we can move on in the text of 1 Peter. I will be honest with you that last Sunday, I went home feeling like, man, that was really heavy. That, that, was, that might, have been, might have been too much. Because you can be too heavy on information and not heavy enough on application. Preaching is not just giving out information and just dry, the, dry theology. But preaching is applying that truth to our life. And I felt like that actually just, just in me, and, and maybe you too, but I felt like that we was a little bit too skewed to, to one side. So much preaching, so much information. I recognize that we're preaching to a mixed audience. So, some that have studied these doctrines for years and years, and some people would say, I, I, I've never heard this before. And, and so, so I, 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 I debated, how do, you, how do you present the material? And so this week I, I reworked it and I came back to it. And I thought I, I could condense it even more. I think instead of three weeks, I think I can do it in two weeks. Now what that meant is I sat down with my notes and I just crossed that out and I crossed that out and I deleted it. And I just read line through a lot of stuff. So here's what I'm going to try to do. I'm going to try to give you the rest of Calvinism today. Today. Now, now I'm not going to run into the evening service. We'll, we'll have a little break, okay? But I'm going to try to give you the rest of Calvinism today. And, and, and if, I, if I feel like that it's getting too heavy, I'm watching the time. If I feel like, I'll just cut it off. And we'll just come back next week and we'll finish it. But I, I'm going to try is what I'm going to do. And then we'll move on 
with 1 Peter. Now, last week I told you that there are five doctrines that make up Calvinism. They are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance in the saints. All five of those doctrines start with a different letter that spells tulip. So sometimes they call it tulip theology. And I won't give you any of the history, nothing about Calvin or nothing like that. But last week we dealt just with total depravity. Every Christian believes in the depravity of man, but the Calvinist defines total depravity as total inability. And he draws upon the analogy of us being dead in trespasses and sins so that everything that is true of a dead man physically is true of an unsaved man in the spiritual realm. He says that since he is so dead, he is incapable of responding to the gospel since he has no free will to choose Christ. And God must, here's the key word, regenerate him before he can be saved. He has to be quick and he has to be regenerated. That's not salvation. That's just to get him to where he can be saved. Now, personally, I believe that the Bible teaches that faith comes before regeneration. That, that, a, man, that a man, when he is saved, it is at that moment that he is regenerated, born again, given new life. And I believe the Calvinist puts the cart before the horse. Man has to be quickened. Um, John 3, the phrase born again to the Calvinist, that's not being saved. That's getting him out of that dead state so that he can respond to the gospel. And by the way, God does that only for the elect, those that he has predestined to go to heaven. And so the Calvinist makes no emphasis on the conviction of the Holy Spirit in order to be saved. That's just getting you to the place where you can be saved. Now let me just stop right here and say this. If you're sitting in this service this morning and I preach on the depravity of man and I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and you're sitting there and you realize in this service that I'm lost, I've never been saved, then what do you do? What, what is your next step? According to the Calvinist, there's nothing you can do. The Calvinist has one answer and it's in Lamentations 3 and verse 26. It is good for a man that he should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. The only thing that you can do is wait and hope that you are elected to salvation. That's the only choice that you have. Now that brings us to the second doctrine, unconditional election. If you believe in total depravity as explained by the Calvinists, then you must believe unconditional election. Unconditional election is the doctrine that God, before the foundations of the world were laid in His sovereignty, chose who would be saved and who would not be saved. There are two words that frame the doctrine. It is the word election and predestinate. The word elect, the word elect, which by the way is a Bible doctrine, the word elect means to choose. When we elect someone, we choose, when we have a political election, we choose from several candidates, and it used to be that that actually mattered how you voted, but it doesn't anymore. But, but to elect is to choose who you would like to have in public office. Predestinate, that's a compound word. Pre, before. Destined, to, to determine. So predestined is to determine something beforehand. So the doctrine is that God predetermined God chose who that he would save for no other purpose than his own sovereign pleasure. That's the doctrine of unconditional election. Now, I told you last week that total depravity is built upon 
several building blocks, free will, um, um, uh, regeneration, um, uh, th those doctrines. Well, unconditional election is built upon some building blocks as well. I'll give you three of them. The first building block for unconditional election is the sovereignty of God. Now, everybody in here surely believes in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty says that all things are under God's rule and control. That nothing happens in this universe without his direction or at least his permission. He is subject to none. He is influenced by none. He is answerable to none. And there's literally hundreds of verses we could point to, to the sovereignty of our God. Now, now let, me, let me just stop right here. And, I, and I'm, I, boy, I got to stay right on time. I don't have time to run no rabbit trails this morning, all right? It's interesting to me, buzzwords, buzzwords. And, and you know, religion and denominations and religious groups still pick up buzzwords. And, and after a while, everybody using that word, and it might be a good word, might be a good word, like awesome, awesome. Boy, our God is an awesome God. Also, you know, there's actually nothing wrong with that. I don't know. It doesn't seem as, I, I don't know. It's just a little bit secular to me. I, I, I don't really care. I don't, I don't have a verse against it, but it's just, I, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? I, I like Bible words. I, I, I like that. I like that. The word sovereign, the word sovereign. Now, we believe he's sovereign, right? Would you be surprised to learn that the word sovereign or sovereignty is not found in your King James Bible? It's not. In fact, the only place that you will find the word sovereign in the King James Bible is in the preface, in the, in the dedicatory preface that they dedicated to King James 1, and they called him the most dread sovereign. But they never used that word to refer to God. Now, most modern versions, in fact, modern versions didn't do it until 1973 in the NIV, the New International Version, 300 times they substituted the word God for sovereign. So, so the NIV evidently, they thought that God's sovereignty was not represented enough. And so, so now, instead of Lord God, he becomes sovereign Lord. Now, why would you do that? Uh, but by the way, by the way, you may be also interested to know that though the Bible never uses the word sovereign for God, it is one of the 99 names that Muslims ascribe to Allah. Well, that's interesting to me. You see, the NIV translators, they didn't see a problem substituting sovereign for God, nor did they notice they had just given him one of the names that's given to Allah. The reason... The reason why King James translators didn't use that word is because that word was used exclusively for an earthly monarch. Webster's 1828. Sovereign is a supreme lord or ruler, one who possesses the highest authority without control. By that definition, Hugo Chavez is sovereign. But he's not God. And when you substitute that word, you have brought God down to the level of human monarchs. I think you just leave the word God in there. I think that's good enough. Now, now is God sovereign? Absolutely. But to the Calvinist, sovereignty means a God who is not bound by even his own laws. The Calvinist says that sovereignty means that God can do as he pleases, even send men to hell for no other reason than that he pleases to do so. 
And if he does it, it is right just because he did it. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a perversion of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign, but that does not mean that he is arbitrary. God is sovereign, but his sovereignty does not cancel out his holiness. All the actions of God do not flow from his sovereignty. They flow from his holiness. Psalm 145, the Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. While it is true to say that God can do whatever he pleases, it's more accurate to say that God will not do anything contrary to his holiness. It's built on sovereignty. But the second building block for unconditional election are the decrees of God. Now, we're not going to go deep in that. I just mentioned this. Because once you establish sovereignty as the greatest attribute of God, the Calvinist moves on to the decrees of God. And according to the Calvinists, they say that God has decreed everything that has happened or will happen, and that by his sovereignty. In other words, just because he wants to. Every single thing that has happened in the universe since creation has been ordered. It has been decreed by God, including the salvation of some and the damnation of others. Everything from your brown eyes to the day of the second coming, it has already been set in stone, foreordained. It has been decreed by God. By the way, the word decree, decrees, found 56 times in your King James Bible, only eight times is it God decreeing something. There is no verse that said God has decreed everything that has ever happened. And the Calvinists will quote a verse like Job 14 and verse 5, seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee, thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. They read into that that God has determined every single word, every single thought, every single deed of every man. That's not what the verse says. All that verse is saying is that God knows how long you're going to live and you can't live any longer than that. And anything else has to be read into that verse. I ask you if God has decreed everything, everything to be, how do you explain when men reject the counsel of God? Did God decree for that to happen too? Proverbs 1 and verse 25, But ye have said at not all my counsel, and would, none of my reproof, Luke 7 and verse 30. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves. Did God decree that those men would reject his counsel? If so, why even give them the counsel? And if God has indeed already decreed everything that is to happen to happen, then why pray? In fact, if God has already sovereignly decreed every event that's going to happen, how dare you infringe upon his will and ask him to change? Are you not satisfied with what he has decreed? Do you think that he has decreed something that is bad and you need to convince him to change his mind? And if he were to change his mind, was his first intent his decree or did he decree that he would decree to something and then change his mind and do the other thing? That he, which one was his decree? Jeremiah 19 and verse 5, he says, They have built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings upon Baal, which I commanded not, nor spake it, neither came it into my my mind. God said, don't blame that on me. I didn't decree that. You see, God has not decreed all things, but God does permit all things. nothing, Nothing happens that God does not allow. That does not imply that God ordered it to happen. 
In Judges chapter 19, there was a man that hacks his concubine up into 12 pieces and sends her out to the coast of Israel. Did God sovereignly, arbitrarily decree for that to happen or did he permit it to happen? In Leviticus 18, there are some people that burn their children through the fire of Molech. Did God decree for them to do that or did God permit them to do that? You know, if you, if you believe in the eternal decrees of God and that God decreed everything that has happened or will happen, then you have to ask, what about sin? Did God decree the fall? And boy, we could really get into deep doctrine right here. And if it's the first time that you've ever heard that, you would say, well, 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 naturally, no. Surely God did not decree that Adam would fall and we would have all of this sin. But the Calvinist paints, paints itself in the corner because he does believe that. God not only knew about the fall, God foreordained it to happen. God the creator of sin. Has God, has God decreed even the sins of men? One verse they turn to is Isaiah 45 and verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. But the word evil doesn't always mean sin. It doesn't always mean moral wickedness. God brings evil upon men as in trouble, but God doesn't cause any man to sin. How can you say that God creates man, decrees man to sin, and then sends him to hell because he didn't choose to save him in the first place? Romans 9 and verse 14, what should we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Psalm 5 and verse 4, Thou art not a God that hath pleasure and wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. This is the scheme of Calvinism that God foreordained that Adam and Eve would eat of the forbidden fruit. He forbade them so that he could punish them for doing it, and, and, but he caused them to do it. And then in his unconditional election, he saves a select few to show his growth. That's ludicrous. But that's Calvinism. It's built, it's built on sovereignty. It's built a perversion of sovereignty, perversion of decrees. And then, and then quickly, it's built on a perversion of the foreknowledge of God. Calvinism makes this leap that God has ordained everything that is going to be. And here's the mistake they make. They mistake foreknowledge with foreordaining. He says that God has, God has perfect knowledge of all things future because he has foreordained them to happen. And their logic is that God only foreknows what he has foreordained, but he has foreordained everything, so he knows everything. Well, that's twisted logic, isn't it? Think it through. Think it through. I know, I know what I am doing tomorrow because I've planned it. That says absolutely nothing about my foreknowledge because there's a whole lot of things that can mess my plans up tomorrow, something that I am not aware of. I can only know what I have determined. Well, if God is in the same boat with me, neither one of us is omniscient. Right? Or, 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 am I making sense? God, listen, God is sovereign and God is omniscient and God knows everything, but that does not, that does not mean that God, God has foreordained every event to happen before it happens. There's no verse that says God has decreed every thought and every word and every reaction and every action that should take place in human history. If God has foreordained every action, then all you are is a robot. That's all that you are. Now, now, how does all this apply to the doctrine of unconditional election? Here, here's what they say. It simply means that the election of some sinners to be saved was included in the eternal decrees of God and is based solely on His sovereign purpose. Now, 
here is your problem. Here is your problem. And I, well, I'm, I'm, I'm skimming through. Whatever you believe about salvation, then you must believe about damnation. If you believe that man is saved because he was predestined to be solely on the basis that God elected him to be saved, then you must conclude that other men are damned to hell because they are predestined to be on the sole basis that they were not elected by God. That is the necessary consequence of unconditional election. Now there's a number of verses that talks about man being reprobate and appointed under wrath. But it is not arbitrary in the will of God. It is based on something that he does. Romans 1, even as they did not like to retain God to their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient because he sovereignly predestined. No, that's not what it says. Why did he do that? Because they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man. God gave them up to uncleanness. Why? Because they changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator. He gave them up to vile affections. Why? Because they did not retain God in their knowledge. It wasn't that he created their reprobate mind. It's based on their actions. The Calvinist who holds to divine Reprobation, which is what that's called, you really run into a problem when you deal with the death of an infant. Because you can't possibly assume that all babies who die are part of those elected to salvation. And you have to include that some of them that died were of the non-elect. Where do they go? They're perishing in hell too. Yesterday, I, I was driving the bus coming up the road, and I, I listened to a podcast, and, and it's a guy that, that talks about Calvinism a lot, and I was listening to podcasts yesterday, and, and, and he was doing a podcast on how to comfort a believer who has lost a non-elect family member to death. Here's their conclusion. Here, here, here's, I'll, I'll boil the 30-minute podcast down, okay? Is you just have to trust God and glorify Him anyway, that even though you know that your non-elect brother or mother or father died, and they didn't have a chance to get saved or go to heaven anyway, God is sovereign. His ways are past understanding. One day we'll understand why He created that person, never giving them a chance to get saved, created them for the purpose of damnation, and just glorify Him in His sovereignty anyway. That, my friend, is a perversion of the sovereignty of God. The doctrine of unconditional election. I give you the third point. I give you the third point, all right? You have total depravity, you have unconditional election. Here's the third doctrine that's limited atonement. Limited atonement. Of the five doctrines, you must have total depravity and unconditional election. You don't have to have limited atonement. Limited atonement is a logical conclusion of the first two, but it doesn't require. Here's what it says. The atonement is limited to only the elect. Since only the elect are going to be saved, then it's only reasonable that Christ would die only for the elect. It doesn't mean that it's limited in power, but it is limited in scope. 
the death of Christ is sufficient to save everybody, but it wasn't intended to save everybody. Now, Christ could have died for the world, but it wouldn't have done any good. Because God wasn't going to save him anyway. So Christ only died for those whom the Father determined that he would save. Christ could have died a thousand deaths for you. It would have been a waste of time if you are part of the non-elect. If God has marked you out for hell, then why bother sending his son to die for your sins? So, so the cross, the cross, the cross can save everybody it's intended to save. Except for some of you, it never was intended. That's limited tone. Now there's a couple of verses that, that gives the Calvinists a little bit of a problem with this, all right? For, for example, for example, uh, the, the next day John sees Jesus coming in him and said, Behold the Lamb of God which take away the sin of the world. For God so loved the world, the world. To it the God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, if I was a Calvinist, I'd need a way to get around that. So this is what I would do. World actually means world of the elect. That's what it means. It doesn't mean the whole world like you think. It means world of the elect. See, see, here, see here's what they say. The Jews believed that salvation was for the Jews only. So in order to counter that, the writers of the Gospels and the Epistles were being very emphatic that no, it's not just for the Jews only. Salvation is for the Jews and the Gentiles. So they use phrases like the world, all men, everybody, every creature to say it's not just for Jews, it's for Jews and Gentiles. So they take the word world and they make it synonymous with elect. Now, if we had time, I could sit down with you and I could use logic and I could refute that or I could just read the Bible and believe it. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. By the way, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Now listen, whosoever should not perish, whosoever believeth in him, does that imply that whosoever could not believe in him? Sure it does. That statement makes absolutely no sense if it's not possible. The whosoever is not just the whosoever of the elect. It is the whosoever of the world. Then you have verses that explicitly says that Christ died for all men. 1 Timothy 2 verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all. We see Jesus, who's made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. Every man. In fact, here's one. Here's one. Isaiah 53. Would you, would you just turn to that one? Don't have any screens, so you had to be old-fashioned use your Bible. Isaiah 53. Here, here's, here's a good one for you. Look at verse number 6. Are, are we still okay this morning? All right, all right. Here, here we go. Isaiah 53 and verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of Oh, so that's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, the Calvinist says, now, it's not the iniquity of everybody like you're thinking. It's the iniquity of all the elect. That's who he died for. That's who it's all. Would you notice that verse 6 opens and ends with the exact same word? All. It starts and it ends with all. Now, if all 
at the end of the verse doesn't mean all, then how does all at the beginning of the verse mean all? If the all at the end of the verse is a select few, then to be consistent, the all at the beginning of the verse has to be a select few. But if all we like sheep have gone astray means all of us, so I'm going to guess the end of the verse when you laid on him the iniquity of us all, I'm going to guess that's meaning all of us. The Calvinist also. Now, now here's, here, here's the Calvinist's favorite word. It's many. many. Not all. It's many. Because you have verses like this. Matthew 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Uh, Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. Hebrews 9, and verse 28. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. So to the Calvinists, all doesn't mean all, but many certainly does mean many. Look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Interesting little statement right here. Romans 5 and verse number 15. But not as the offense also is a free gift. For if through the offense of one... Many be dead. Much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. See what to say? See, 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 the grace of God's not expecting to everybody. It's to many, just to many. Not everybody, just to many. Well, if it's not everybody, then, then, then back up. If to the offense of one, many be dead. Not everybody. Just a few. Do, do you see that? I'm going to tell you, if through the offense of one, that's Adam, many be dead? No, everybody's dead. Right? Are, are you with me? In fact, I can use this kind of exegesis and I can prove to you that Jesus Christ really only died for one person. Galatians 2 and verse number 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live, I live in the flesh, I live in the flesh by, by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Not you. <laughs> Just me. The reality is the Bible says that Christ died for the world, he died for every man, he died for all, and he died for many. And the Bible clearly teaches that he also died for the unbeliever. Luke 19 and verse 10, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Romans 5 and verse 6, when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. If you're lost, if you're the ungodly, if you're a sinner, he died for you. Wish I had time for that. I don't have time, time for that. Total depravity. Total depravity. Unconditional election. Limited atonement. He only died for the elect. That brings you to the fourth doctrine. That's irresistible grace. Now what is irresistible grace? It is the doctrine that those who have been elected to be saved will be saved. That just as those who have not been elected cannot be saved, so those who have been elected must be saved. None of the elect, all, or none but, none but the elect, all of the elect. If man has no free will to accept or reject the gospel, then God must overpower that will in order for him to be saved. 
It is not conceivable that God would predetermine, God would elect somebody to salvation before the end of the world, before the, before the world began, and that man end up not getting saved. So God has to take that choice out of his hands, and that's irresistible grace. I believe that God convicts the sinner. I believe that God woos the sinner. I believe that God enlightens the sinner. The Calvinist makes that an irresistible work. There is no greater truth in your Bible that, that man is saved by grace. And the word grace is found 170 times in your Bible, and not one time is it ever spoken of being irresistible. In fact, the word irresistible never occurs in your Bible. Now, there's a very serious implication that's to be drawn from all of this. And the problem with bad theology is that it always leads to bad living. And so far, here's what the Calvinist believes. Man cannot do anything. He cannot come to God of his own free will. And God has chosen only a portion of men to be saved. And Christ died only for those elect. And all of those elect must be saved. Now, if you believe that, then tell me the purpose of evangelism. If, if I believe that, it is disingenuous of me to give an altar call or to pass out a gospel tract, or to give a public invitation. What would happen if I give an invitation this morning for people to come and get saved? And there are non-elects sitting in this service. And I invite you to come, but you're not welcome to come. Hmm? In place of giving an invitation, Calvinists believe you just pray for the salvation of the elect. But if they're part of the elect, then why bother praying for them anyway? They're going to get saved whether you pray for them or not. What do you do with the obvious fact that the invitation to salvation is given to all men? What do you do with the whosoever wills of the Bible? I've cut out all quotes. I've cut out every quote of every Calvinist leader. I've cut every one of them out, but I'll give you this one. Here's what he says. Although Christ is offered in the Gospels, salvation is not offered. The offer is merely a declaration. A declaration that only the elect hear as an invitation. What twisted logic. If, if the, the Calvinism has to have irresistible grace because what would happen if one of the elect chose not to be saved? The entire system falls. The whole doctrine falls. But a false doctrine built upon a false doctrine built upon a false doctrine is a house of cards that is bound to fall. It's irresistible grace. I'll give you the last one. I'll give you the last one. And next week, we're looking at 1 Peter 1 and verse 2. We're going to look at the whole verse. So you got total depravity. It's total inability. You have unconditional election. And you have limited atonement. He only died for the elect. Irresistible grace. You ain't no choice. And you're going to get saved. But then you have perseverance in the saints. Here's, here, here's perseverance stated, that once God has begun the work of salvation in any person, He will persevere therein to the end and will never let any of His own be lost. Now, I, I agree with that statement, but, but that, is not, that is not all that the Calvinist explanation of perseverance of the saints is. Perseverance of the saints emphasizes the believer's outward endurance. Eternal security emphasizes God's keeping power. Perseverance of the saints is, 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 is the doctrine that all true believers 
will continue in the faith until they die. If they do not, you can count them as having never been saved. It essentially makes works in keeping your salvation. I, I believe in a converted life. And I believe in eternal security. I, I believe in a changed life. But that changed life does not secure your salvation. If you don't persevere in the faith, you give us no reason to believe that you ever were truly, genuinely converted, but your salvation is not in your hands. A person does not have to persevere in order to be saved. Do all saints persevere? The word perseverance is found one time in the Bible. It has nothing to do with persevering until the end. Ephesians 6 and verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication. That's the only time the word is mentioned. In fact, the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that many Christians don't persevere. Everyone who gets saved does not continue in the faith. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, they depart from the faith, they err from the faith, they, they deny the faith, they make shipwreck of faith, they cast off one's first faith, they don't continue in the faith, they can fall to their unknown steadfastness, they become barren and unfruitful, they can deny Christ, they can be ashamed when Christ returns. In fact, the Bible calls Lot a righteous and a just man, but the last time you saw him in the Old Testament, he didn't look very righteous, didn't look very just. There's a number of exhortations in the Bible for the believer to persevere. But perseverance is not automatic and it is not necessary for salvation. The Bible doesn't speak of perseverance. The Bible speaks of the preservation of the saint. Perseverance is persistence. It is effort. It is the work of a man. But when you are preserved, it is something that somebody does for you. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 23, the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. I pray God your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved, blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's not you doing something. That's him doing something. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 18, the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Jude in verse 1, Jude the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. I reject perseverance of the saints, but I do believe in the preservation of the saints. The believer is eternal secure. Once saved, always saved. Not a Baptist doctrine, it's a Bible doctrine. Once saved, always saved. Not because of what you are doing, but because of what he has done. Doesn't reject conversion. Doesn't reject the changed life. I believe in that. But that changed life is not the security of your salvation. The security of your salvation is in the sealing of the Holy Spirit. I, I have, I, boy, I've, I've ran through this fast. I know, five doctrines. I believe those five doctrines are heretical doctrines. I believe they're anti-Bible. I believe, I believe as a pastor, that those five doctrines, when they get into a church, will literally destroy a church. I've watched churches die because somebody slipped in, took a Bible class, on a Friday night home Bible study, whatever it might be. We, we've had people sit here. We've had people sit here that subscribed to those doctrines. Subscribe to those doctrines. I've had conversations with them. And Brother Jason just made it crystal clear. You can sit in that pew, but you're not going to spread that here. You're going to preach it. We're not, we're not going to have it. It, it, it. There's there's no reason for evangelism. No use to pass out a track. It, it, it is the death knoll of missions and evangelism. 
it would destroy a church is what it did to me. That's why we're not Calvinists. Now come to that, I come to that verse. I come to that verse, elect according to the full knowledge of God the Father. And next week, next week, we'll talk about the Trinity in that verse. The three persons of the Trinity are right there in that verse. How great a salvation that we have. And we'll talk about biblical election, Bible doctrine, but not according to the Calvinists. But I couldn't, you, you understand, I could not, I could not for the life of me get past that statement without just saying a word about why we are not Calvinists. Not Calvinists. Don't plan to ever be. Don't plan to be. There's a lot of churches, a lot of churches that, that have always been, been straight doctrine and King James Bible, I mean the whole nine yards. And a lot of churches that are moving away from that. That right there is being taught in Southern Baptist seminaries. It has infiltrated the Southern Baptist Convention. And it's sweeping into independent Baptist churches as well. If every, if every Baptist church in the state of Florida adopts a Calvinist doctrinal statement, may we be the last one that says no, not here.